Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We'll be in verses 11 through 15. The great white throne. Now, we, we just sang Psalm 103, and uh, it's one of my favorite psalms. Uh, one thing, absent from the song, but unmissable uh, from the song, but unmissable in the text. And as I was meditating on it, it stood out over and over again. Psalm 103. It doesn't give these blessings to everyone. It gives the blessings to a very specific group of people. The blessings are for those who fear the Lord. One element of fearing the Lord comes from understanding what will happen on that great day when all will stand before Him. You know, once I heard a story of, uh, of a man, he was preaching in one of those older churches where, kind of like this one, you can look right out the door and if the doors are open, you can see right outside. And as he was preaching, he could see into the foyer and he saw someone come in through the back door and they were rummaging around and they started to take the coats and, and go out with them and come in and they were taking the coats. And so as he was preaching, he pointed and said, someone is stealing the coats. They've come in through the back door of the church. They're stealing the coats. And people nodded their heads. And Well, he went on to finish the sermon rather quickly after that. And then the people got up and were on their way out and they looked around and said, hey, the coats are all gone. A preacher said, I told you. And they answered, yeah, but we thought you were just preaching. It's a joke, yes, but it's, it's relatable. There's often a disconnect between what is preached or, or what you read in the Scriptures and how we respond. The truth that is there does not have the impact on us that it ought to have. There, there are a few reasons for this. One of them is, is because you and I are bombarded all day long all day long with phrases and slogans and messages that seek to convince us that this life is all that there is, and afterward, that's it. And so when you come and you hear preaching, or you're reading the Word, especially when you get to a passage like the one we're about to read, you think of it as, is this is interesting? You think of it as, this is factual even? It's going to happen? But by and large, you're comfortable ignoring it and living like it's never going to come. Because listen, you don't have to believe, listen, in the theory of evolution or secular humanism. You don't have to believe that life is, human life is no more significant than a, a tree or a dog or a rat. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to be an atheist who thinks death is just the end of life and after that it's over. You don't have to deny the afterlife. And say, when I die, this is it. I'll feel nothing. I'll think nothing. I'll know nothing. Existence is over. Now, you may not believe any of that, but you live in a world that does, and it affects you all the time. And my concern is you can hear a passage like this about the great day of judgment and say to yourself, well, that's just preaching. That's just some future thing. And even though you affirm it and acknowledge that it's coming, we just go on living as if it was a, a fantasy or a fiction. We go on living just like everybody else. 
There's, there's more though than just dullness in our hearts at work. There's more than just the dullness that comes, you know, almost like our spirituality. It's like you take a knife that had a sharp edge and, and you rub it on a rock. It just gets dull and that seems what, to be what happens to us as we walk through this world. We just become dull to these things. But there's more at work against us than just dullness. This is what we're about to read. It's the day to end all days. It's a great and awesome and awful day of the Lord. And what will happen on that day, to try to understand it, it brings us to the very edge of what, what we as jars of clay have the capacity to hold. We dip past the, the limits of our understanding here. It's, it's a hard passage to preach because words alone cannot begin to do justice of the truth of these of these five verses. It's like, it's like uh, Psalm 119. The psalmist says, teach me your word. Well, he's got the word. He's reading the word. He sees the word. He knows the word. So why is he praying for God to teach it to him? Because it's spiritually discerned and there's more here. There's more in the word than just what you're reading and the, and the prepositions it imparts. There's a spiritual reality that we're dull to that we need to be enlivened to take in. I mean, this passage ought to make us a different breed of people. It ought to make us a different kind of people. I mean, have you ever seen someone and they're sure of their destiny? A man with a great name that went before him? Or a man or a woman confident of, of victory like the woman in Proverbs 31? right, Clothed with strength and dignity? Laughing at the days to come? I mean, should the great... And inevitable day of the Lord, shouldn't it have a similar effect on us? It's not just us who believe in it that should be affected by it. The knowledge of this day ought to have a tremendous effect on those who suppress the very thought of it in unrighteousness. Who suppress it and think of it as a day that will never come. Or, or I can get ready for it on my own. Or I can do so many other things and, and I'll be alright. I haven't even read it yet. It's Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated upon it. From His presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great, and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help me to preach. Lord, this is a, this is a dreadful passage. And I pray You would press the reality of it upon us, Lord, and that Your Spirit would be at work to teach us, Lord. 
not so that we can just recite what we've read, but so, Lord, it makes an impact on us. God, engrave it into our hearts so that we wouldn't walk out of these doors this morning the same kind of people who walked through them. Lord, we, we know it's not just words. Lord, we know so much. I pray, Lord, that You would demonstrate Your Spirit and Your power this morning in the preaching of Your Word and in the hearts of Your people. I pray for those, Lord, who don't know You. Be merciful to them. Help us, Lord, to live in light of this great day. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Well, before this passage can be done any real sense of justice, we, we have to put a knot in verses 7-10 through 10 from last week. Uh, there was a lot I hoped to say and ran out of time for, so, so let me just take a moment to tie them together. If you weren't here or, or don't remember, that passage, 7-10, through 10, it marked the full and final destruction of Satan and his kingdom. That's verses 7-10. through 10. And I want to make this crystal clear. This is not a geopolitical battle in a geographical location. This is not physical armies gathered by the Antichrist to wage war against ethnic Israel. This is not what's happening in this chapter. It is the end of that spiritual war that Satan has been waging for thousands of years to destroy the church. You see, often when you think of Revelation, I mean, you think about it from the perspective that you're used to. What other perspective are you going to think about it from? But what that means is you think in terms of soldiers on the march, you know, helicopters flying through the air, and armies gathering in the Middle East. But when you think that way, this is what happens. The passage becomes distant, right? It's a distant, foreign, future thing that has no meaning or bearing on you today. And that's how people look at the book of Revelation, by and large. It's about... It's about God didn't book so you can read it and come away saying, well, I'm really glad none of this applies to me. When you understand what is, this is really about, what's really going on here, it becomes impossible to separate yourself from it. It is the spiritual war that Satan wages against the people of God over the whole earth across all time. And that army, Gog and Magog, it includes everyone who does not belong to Christ. Because everyone who hasn't enlisted with Christ has enlisted with the beast. I mean, it's it's frustrating as a pastor talking to people who think, well, if I just don't get that chip in my arm or that tattoo on my forehead or whatever, I'll be safe. It's not going to make you safe. It's going to make you duped. Because it's not about getting tattoos and microchips. It's about the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so don't think, all i got to do is not let them stick that thing under my skin or put that thing on my, on my forehead and I'll be ready to meet the Lord. That's not what the Bible means when it commands us to be watchful and to be alert. Everyone who has not bowed the knee to Christ, everyone who has not come to Him in repentance and faith, everyone who hasn't done that, is and is going to be part of this symbolic army that is consumed with fire. I mean, this changes how you think about the end times, doesn't it? 
It's easy to sit back and view Revelation as a kind of, of prophetic, cataclysmic entertainment, a fantastic sci-fi thing that doesn't involve us. It's very different when you realize you have to examine your own heart right here and right now. It's very different when you have to ask yourself, whose side am I on today? Am I compromising today? Am I trusting in Christ right now? Or have I bowed the knee to the evil one by living in the city of Babylon? Living for the world, just like the world, loving the world. I mean, where are you at today? Standing on faith in Christ? Or a slave to the unholy trinity of the beast and the false prophet and the dragon? Who themselves represent what? Worldly political power, religious power, and Satan himself. Well, you say, well, I'm neither of those things. I'm not for him. I'm not against him. I'm sorry, but there is no room in this picture for sitting on the sidelines. Whether you admit it or not, or believe it or not, you are on one side or the other. There, there's no room in this picture for people who say, well, Jesus, you're a great guy. And I, I really admire you. I respect you. I consider your people political allies. But worshiping you, it really isn't my thing. There's no room for that. That's why, this is why I don't understand why so many Christians are putting so much stock and, 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 and hope in conservative internet talk show hosts. That, that boggles my mind. Some of them think Jesus is a, is a blasphemer. Others who, who think he is a helpful myth. Others who think, well, he probably didn't exist at all, but, you know, if I can get his people inside of this movement, it'll do the movement some good. It's just a pragmatic solution. You know, look, there are only two sides in this equation, and they aren't conservative or liberal. They are people, they are people who worship God and love him, and those who do not. Those who worship him, and on the other side, Everybody else, conservative and liberal and whatever other political stripe you want to draw. It's like Joshua when he asks the Lord of hosts, you remember, he says, whose side are you on? What does, what does the angel answer? He says, are you on our side or our enemies? And the, the angel of the Lord says, neither, because it was the wrong question. The question was to Joshua, are you on the side of the Lord? That's what matters, not whose side is God on. As if God could be brought down and forced into our sides. But my concern is that so many people are, are, are building a place for themselves in conservatism where they're going to find themselves homeless in short order. This is a, a spiritual reality. It's not cultural or politically primarily. And every one of us is engaged in one side or the other of this particular battle. Every one of us. And the lines are drawn on the person of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Were you faithful to Him? Do you trust in Christ? Do you worship Him? Or did you join in the kingdom of the evil one? Every one of us is going to have to answer for where we stood because there is a reckoning coming. And we just read about it, didn't we? And that reckoning in which you and I and everyone you know or have ever read about will participate, it will come when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the day when the elements are dissolved to be renewed and the world is judged. 
But I want, to, I want you to notice something. This is not the first time this has appeared in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, the sixth seal was opened. What happened? The kings of the earth and the great ones were judged. The sky is rolled back like a scroll. That happens back in chapter 6. The great ones cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb who is seated upon the throne. In chapter 11, 18, the elders are singing a song after the seventh trumpet was blown. And do you remember what they sing? The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. It's talking about what we read in chapter 20. Time for the dead to be judged. And then again in chapter 14, 17 through 20, the winepress of God's wrath where the earth is gathered and trampled in judgment. And chapter 16, the seventh bowl is poured out and the angels cry, it is finished. What is finished? The old creation and the mountains and the islands are undone as the people of the earth were made to drink the cup of God's wrath. And here finally in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, once more we're told the people are judged and the earth and sky flee away with nowhere to be found for them. Five times the final judgment is, is held up and replayed in this book. It's the last thing that will ever happen before the new heavens and the new earth begin. And this is where we've been going toward, right? God is about to make all things new, but before He does... He has to destroy everything that is evil. Nothing stained or tarnished or corrupted by sin will ever enter into this new creation. And in order for that to happen, in order for that to come about, and it is coming in the next chapters, creation must be purged. That's what's been happening in these chapters. 17 onward. So far, the Lord has purged creation of Babylon, of the harlot, of the beast, of the false prophet, and of the devil. He's been, he's been writing his enemies, as Dennis Johnson says, out of the script. But there's still one more evil to be dealt with. Now, I heard a sermon on this passage a while ago, and, and in it the preacher was talking about Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And he was talking about the part where Ebenezer Scrooge is taken by a ghost to his own estate sale, but he doesn't know it's his. Maybe some of you have read the book or you've seen the movie, you remember this. And everyone is talking about the man who, who died. And he hears terrible things being said about the one who died and, and how much the people despised him. And he begins to think, what kind of a, of a wicked, pitiful person is this? And just as he begins to, to think about that, he realizes, to his shock and his horror, they're speaking about him. They're saying these terrible things about Him. They're having these horrible thoughts about Him. They're saying the world is a better place now because He is gone. Well, imagine you are a fly on the wall in the council of God as He discusses with the angels the new creation. And you hear Him say, before I'm going to bring in the new heaven and the new earth, we must rid creation of this vile, despicable being who has defiled it so. And when you hear God speak of this, it shocks you that, that such an evil creature even exists. You, you think, this is unlike anything I have ever heard of. I didn't know there was such an animal loose on this earth. What kind of creature is this? Well, 
What a horror would wash over you when you realized that God was speaking about you. And before anything holy or righteous or pure can come, you and everyone like you had to be dealt with. That is the picture before us this morning. There's no appeals. There was no second chances. It is final. You could call it the final, final judgment. Whatever name you want to give it, the outcome doesn't change. It is the great day that the prophets look forward to with anticipation and with dread. And what a picture this is. Influential, great people. It's small and great sinners. I mean, so many people, they, they, they believe in a judgment. They, they think they, when it, that when it comes, they're just going to coast on through. You're going to sneak through undetected or they have some foolproof plan of escape. I say things like, well, even if there is a judgment, I'm sure I'll be okay for this reason or that reason. I want to talk to you for a moment who are unafraid to stand before God in your sin. Why do you suppose that He'll overlook or give you special treatment or deny His Word and His perfect character and law for you? You suppose, well, it's because I'm small. I'm of no consequence. I'm not a great one in this age. Little influence. Sin is small. Shouldn't that be overlooked? If you think that, then you're a child of this age. A child undisciplined. I mean, have you ever seen an undisciplined child? Right? A child who, who is never corrected. They never have to face the consequences of their actions. They're allowed to do what no adult would be allowed to do. What happens to them? Well, at first, at first they might feel a little guilty because they've done something they know is wrong. They might be a little afraid of what might happen to them. The consequences. But as time goes on and those consequences never come, the child becomes hard-hearted. He or she, they begin to think, well, my sins are small, my crimes are petty. No one seems to care much about them anyway. Well, when they grow up, they take this attitude with them. They haven't done much damage to other people. They're not leading others astray. They live a life of small sin, certainly nothing worth prosecuting. Maybe most of their sins are in their heart anyway. And they consider themselves to be a sinner of small stature. The only thing these people are being trained for is their own destruction. Because even though the authorities in their lives, like parents, police, judges, juries, they may have let them off the hook, but God hasn't. He is no respecter of persons, great or small, or great sinners or little ones. And though not all sin is the same, no, no sin is small or insignificant either. And there are no inconsequential sinners because there is no inconsequential sin. There's no such thing as a small sin. But it feels small sometimes, doesn't it? It's because we're so steeped in it. We're surrounded by it. It happens all the time. It's so common. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, people have a difficult time understanding then how God could possibly judge so severely for an infraction so small by comparison. You get this backwards if you think that God is overreacting. That's not the case. God isn't overreacting to sin. We are underreacting 
to sin. You see, when you sin, very often, even as believers, we think, well, we've done something small and of no consequence. Sin is no big deal. It's nothing. And, And then if God responds with an everlasting hell, well, He's making a big deal about nothing. The truth is the complete opposite. By thinking your sin is of no consequence, you have made nothing out of a great grievance to God. And you say, well, how serious is the smallest sin? Look, if you want to know how seriously God takes sin, then look at what He does to sinners. Look at how He punishes sin. It's like if you were to go to a foreign country, and, and there in that country, the penalty for petty theft, right, steal anything, even a gumball, was death. Now, you might agree with it, maybe you wouldn't. But the one thing you could not deny is that these people take theft extremely seriously. Well, when it comes to God's judgment, you might agree or disagree. I mean, wrongly, but you could disagree. But that doesn't change the fact that God takes sin extremely seriously. He will call all men to account because He will call every sin to account. And if you you struggle to, to see what I'm talking about, okay, so so how severely does God take it? Just consider verse 12. The sea gives up its dead, and later Hades and, and gives up its dead, and even death gives up its dead. Well, what does that mean? Well, for one, it means that the appointment is unavoidable. There's no, no getting out. Even death cannot separate you from this day. Sin demands a reckoning. But, but even more, the completeness of the judgment shows just how seriously God takes it. I mean, think about this. Think about this for five seconds. Right now, there are multitudes already dead, like the rich man in the parable of Lazarus, just wanting a drop of water to soothe their tongue. And they are as miserable as they have ever been, suffering night and day right now because of sin committed in the body in this life. But sin is so evil, so vile in the sight of God that even after suffering so long in that, in that disembodied place of torment, the true sentence hasn't even begun. And in the midst of their present suffering, they're going to be summoned and called out of that holding place and reunited with their own resurrected bodies. Everyone gets one, not just the saints. But it's not going to be for their relief. It will be so they can finally begin to be punished for their sins against the Lord God. And that punishment will continue forever without abatement or relief. The reason this seems so severe is because we just cannot understand how awful sin truly is. We don't understand what it means to offend an infinitely righteous God. Thomas Watson He says on this, is God so infinitely holy? Then see how unlike to God sin is. Sin is an unclean thing. It is called an abomination. God has no mixture of evil in Him. Sin has no mixture of good. It is the spirit of evil. It turns good into evil. It has deflowered the virgin soul, made it red with guilt and black with filth. It is called the accursed thing. No wonder therefore God hates sin and treats it so severely. 
So if you don't understand how great an offense to a holy God the slightest sin is, then consider how He answers it. Look at what He does to those who practice it at the final judgment. And pay attention to that word, final. The appointment is final. There is no second chance. No court of appeal. This is the Supreme Court to which all human judgments will be subject. Sometimes people commit a crime here and they, and they get off with it. Not for long. Fifty years, maybe. Not forever. And here it's not going to be a judgment by a jury or a judgment of your peers. You won't be judged by your wife or your pastor, your parents or your friends. You'll be alone, naked, soul-bared, answerable directly to the Lord God. And if you think, well, I'll run away and hide. Look, you can't run away from God. It's that childish attitude. I've done something wrong. I'll go and hide. You can't get away and hide. If you go to the highest heavens, He's there. The lowest depths, when you arrive, you'll find Him waiting for you. And besides that, even if you could run, there's nowhere left to go. The earth itself has fled away. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No exceptions. Maybe you make an objection. Well, many of my worst sins were committed long ago, and, and I've forgotten about them. Will God really hold me to account for something I can't even remember? For the, for the sins of my youth? They were still sins, weren't they? And certainly, if someone were to rob you, or insult you, or wrong you, or, or burn down your house, or, or some sin against you, even if it was 30 years ago, would time dampen the guilt of that crime? No, it wouldn't. And, and even if you felt less strongly about it, it's not because of your forgiving nature. Time has made you apathetic to justice. It's not like that with God. He is many things, but apathetic is not one of them. And though you have forgotten, He has not. Books are brought out. Record books. The books of deeds. The books that contain the names of everyone who has ever lived or will live or is alive today along with everything they have ever done. And of course, these books are, are a metaphor for God's unfailing memory and perfect recollection. It'll be like having a book opened and, and turned to your page and everything you've ever done or thought or said is written down. To put it into contemporary language, your life will be put on display for all to see. I mean, imagine today if I were to call you up to the front of this room and said, listen, I'm going to tell everyone everything you have ever done, every, every word you've ever spoken, and every thought you've ever thought. How would you feel about that? You'd be sick to your stomach. Might even try to strangle me. And that's just me before men. What if you were in a line, a long great multitude, waiting to be called to the front, not just of a congregation and not just before people, but before God Himself. And when your name is called, you will give an account for everything you've ever done. I mean, you would be shudder, shuddering with, with terror. You, you ever, have you ever been, you know, uh, maybe at prayer night and you're afraid that someone's going to ask you to come and pray and you're a little nervous and, and you think, oh, you, I see you guys. You hide your eyes. You don't want to be spotted. You don't want to be called up to the 
What's it going to be like on that day? I mean, if you're afraid to cough because we might be called up to pray, how much more before God when it's a day when all of our sins will be exposed? Have you ever, have you ever wronged somebody else or done something you knew was wicked and it got found out? Maybe you slandered somebody, some cruelty, it's reached its unintended victim, and you've got to come clean, you've gotten caught. That pit in your stomach of guilt exposed. If you can feel that way before men and women just like you, how much worse will it be before a holy God? He will call you to account. And when He does, He will pronounce a sentence on every thought, word, and deed. It's not a counsel to determine guilt. It's a court of sentencing. The Lord, the judge, He knows everything you've ever done because He was there. He has perfect recollection of it. You've forgotten over half of the things that you'll be damned for. But He hasn't. And you'll get to relive every one of them before Him. You say, well, it'll take a long time. Well, maybe so, but we won't be going anywhere, will we? And it's not just you, but everybody. Kings and commoners, princes, paupers, rich, poor, religious, atheists, those alive today, those you read in the history books, kings and tyrants, the whole lot, and you there among the number. All will be gathered when the books were opened. And what will your book say about you? What judgment must God give in your case? This is not just some faraway thing that has no impact on your life. It's like, uh, it's like the voyage of the Dawn Treader. How many of you have read that, read that book? Gideon's listened to it and read it. Well, there's one part in the book where they're sailing along. They're sailing along and, and they, they find a man and he's, he's, he's uh, terrified. They hear him groaning and they haul him up into the boat and the man says to them, flee, turn away, get away from, from this island. There's an island in the distance. And they say, why? And he said, this is the island where all your dreams come true. And the, and the people start to get excited. They start to think, oh, well, this is where our dreams come true. And they start to hoop and holler and begin to set a course for the island. And the man is terrified and he stops him. He says, no, you don't understand. This is the place where all your dreams come true. And when the people understand, the people on the ship, they're terrified. They turn the boat around. They cannot escape fast enough. When you think about this day, it's a, it, we don't often understand so many people talk about hell as if it's a place where I'll go and hang out with all my buddies. Don't understand. Everyone whose name is written in this book of deeds will be sentenced to the lake of fire. You know, one of the criticisms brought against the view that we've been taking on the book of Revelation is that if you don't take it literally, then you don't believe in a literal hell. The criticism is, well, that's what the liberal theologians do. They, they make the whole Bible symbolic and making it symbolic, they do away with all of it. Well, we're interpreting Revelation symbolically because it's a symbolic book. There is a literal hell because elsewhere in the Bible it speaks of a literal hell. Not a place of annihilation. Nothing like that. It's, it's eternal conscious torment. And it is the eternal destiny for everyone who worships the creature instead of the Creator. But just, just to make the point, 
If you think that symbolizing this book means a denial of hell, just let me ask you to reread verses 14 and 15. And you can go back and read verse 10 if you'd like. And tell me, which of those verses speaks about hell? Where, where do you see the word hell in there? You don't. Because it isn't there. What you do find is a lake of fire which is a symbol of hell. So even people who read it, literally read it symbolically, they just don't acknowledge that that's what they're doing. So, so don't think that this is some kind of denial of hell. Hell is a real, awful, and eternal place, and no amount of denying it will make it go away or make it any better. You say, well, if it's not a literal lake of fire, what is it? I don't know, and I don't want to find out. Whatever it is, it's a, it's a painful place. And worst of all, it's a hopeless place. Hopelessness crushes the spirit. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be in physical pain, isn't it? It's another thing to have your spirit utterly crushed with no hope of relief. You know, in Matthew 25, it says that hell was made for the devil, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, people interpret that many poor ways, but what that means is not that God never intended for anybody to go there. Hell prepared for the devil and his angels means it is a place of spiritual torment. Spiritual torment. Satan and his demons are spirits and they need a spiritual imprisonment. It means it is a place of spiritual torment, not physical. And yes, those resurrected undying bodies you will have, they will be in anguish, but not because of the flames of the darkness or the physical suffering. You will be in anguish because of the overwhelming spiritual distress and torment from which there will never be an escape. Often we think only about the flames. When you think of hell, that's a picture that comes to mind. Fire. It's not a bad picture, but it's a symbolic picture. Your greatest depression cannot compare. It will make your hopelessness, your greatest hopelessness of this life look like a spring day. Your worst sickness will be mild and the most intense pain you've ever experienced. It'll be a, a scratch by contrast. This place will make you long for a death that will never come. I mean, here and now, right now, you have a will to live and a dying body. There you will have the will to die in an immortal flesh. You nor I can conceive of a greater agony than awaits those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. No relief, no exits, and for billions of years and billions more, eternal suffering in hell. Well, you ask, is there any escape from such an awful, dreadful place? Is there any escape from that terrible judgment? Not when it comes. When that day comes, it's final. When you die and go, it's over. It'll be too late then. But that day hasn't come yet, and everybody in this room, as far as this moment is concerned, you're alive. You're not dead yet either. And there is a day called today, and it is the day of salvation. You say there's salvation? Where is there salvation in this passage we just read? Verse 12 and verse 15. There is another book. And it's called the book of life. And it's not a book of deeds. It's a book of names. And those whose names are written in that book, 
Do you remember chapter 6? The great ones cry out, who can stand on this awful day? These ones will stand. They don't suffer for their evil deeds. They don't endure the agonies of hell. They don't even dread the day, but they look forward to it with an eager expectation. You say, how can this be? Does God overlook sin? Does He treat one group sin severely and and in other groups He lets it slide? Haven't all sinned? Don't all deserve rightly to be thrown into this place? Why are some spared? How can anybody look forward to this day with anything but dread, let alone hope and longing? More, what, what could, what could save someone who's sunk to such a level of depravity? What could spare them from this end? What has the power to turn a day of such dread into a day of great delight? One thing. It is the blood of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Those names that are written in the book, it's the record of those who are written on His heart. He loved them and He endured the agonies of hell for them. He suffered in our place. And see, this book, it's, it's not just a book of names. The book is called the book of life. And not just the book of life, but the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This too, it's a book of suffering. It is the book of the blood of Christ. It is a book stained red. Every name washed over in a crimson tide covered by the blood of our Passover lamb. And it is a book of judgment. But judgment that fell on Christ when His incorruptible life was given in exchange for His people. How much did Christ endure? Hell is of infinite duration. And it is so terrible that people have to be supernaturally reconstituted just to be able to endure it. It's beyond what any individual could possibly withstand. And it was all poured out on Jesus Christ. But He didn't only endure it for one man or one woman. He endured it for countless millions. And not just for millions of people, but for millions of eternities. I mean, Think about it. Millions, maybe billions of eternity's worth of spiritual torture and it's all condensed into three short hours and poured out to the dregs on Jesus Christ. It's inconceivable what He endured. The the intensity of the wrath of His Father that He must have faced. Not just hell as though it were merely a place of torment. That would be bad enough. But what is hell? but the unalloyed, unmitigated, undiluted wrath of God against sin. If hell were only a lake of eternal fire, it would be a mercy to those who face it. Who else but Christ could endure such a thing? You understand why He is the only one worthy of worship? Do you begin to see how worthy He is? I mean, the whole why the whole world is divided into only those two camps? Those who love Him and those who reject Him or ignore Him or hate Him or use Him. It's because He is worthy. And to give your life to anything less than the worship of Jesus Christ is to give yourself to an idol, even if it's done in His name. And to reject this great deliverance. As the author of Hebrews says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation of every sin you could possibly commit? of everything you could do to store up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, rejecting this salvation, rejecting Christ, it's the worst offense by far. And for some of you, it might have been better if you've never heard His name. 
It would be because God is going to hold you accountable for saying no. I'm going to give you an example, and you've heard it before. But if someone insults you or mocks you or belittles you, you, you're, you're very likely to overlook it and cover the offense. But what if someone does the same thing to your child? Is it easier to overlook someone belittles your dear son or daughter? You're going to tear them to pieces. So let me put this into perspective for some of you. I want you to imagine you're asleep in your bed. Your house is burning down around you. And within a few minutes, you are going to die. You're going to wake up, inhale the smoke, be on fire, burn alive. But a man is walking down the street with his son, his, his beloved son, his courageous son. And the father sees the building, knows that you're sleeping in there, and he tells his son, go in and rescue them. And the son, the obedient son, he does. And he, he goes through the door, runs up the stairs, through the flames, grabs hold of you from your bed, and throws you out of the window, throws you to safety. You land in a bush or land in the snow. And as he does, the entire building comes crashing down, and the son is crushed and consumed in the flames. Now, what would you think of a man if when the father rushed over and held out his hand to the one his son gave his life to rescue, what would you think if when he held it out, it was swatted away in disgust? I don't care about your son. I don't care about his sacrifice. I want nothing to do with it. I would have been fine on my own. I could have got out myself. He didn't need to do that for me. I was perfectly fine on my own. What would you think of such a man? Well, I'll tell you what you think. You'd think he should have been left to perish in the flames. Behold, you have condemned yourself. Because if you're here this morning, and you're going to walk out those doors having spurned the message, then you have rejected everything that is good and righteous and holy. A rejecter of Christ. He died for you and now commands you and all people everywhere to repent and to be saved. I mean, is your heart so hard that God has to threaten you to be saved? Be saved or else? How will you answer Him on that day? What are you going to say when He turns in the book to the morning of August 6, 2003 and asks you, why did you despise My Son and neglect so great a salvation? What will you say? What Defense will you give for your eternal soul? There is only one answer. Only one. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. There is only one way, one truth, one life, one door, one substitute, one sacrifice, and one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you're here and you think, look, all you've done all you've done this morning's made people afraid of hell. Good. Because there are some things you ought to be afraid of. Be afraid of what God will do to the unrepentant sinner. Be afraid of what God will do to you if you persist in your sin. It's not my words. Do not fear Him who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. But... Don't stop at fear. Don't stop until you've settled the matter of your soul with God through Christ. He came to save His people from their sins. He lived to save His people from their sins. He is 
He died to save His people from their sins, rose to save His people from their sins, and sits at the right hand of God today interceding for His people to save them from their sins. And He will save you from yours if by faith and repentance you give your life to Him. And if you already have, Christ is worthy of your life, isn't He? He is worthy of your death. He's worthy of everything you could possibly offer and more. Not, not to gain anything from you, but because of how much He gave for you. Live for Jesus Christ. He is the only one worthy of giving your life to. So much more that could be said. Well, let's pray. Lord, I... Lord, there are so many other things that could be said, Lord. But how how can these verses be preached? It is the great white throne of judgment. It is an awful day. An awesome day. Lord, I pray that I pray that we would be ready for it. I pray that all of us would be prepared. That all of us would come to Christ. And if we have to live more fully for Him, Lord, she loved much because she knew how much she'd been forgiven, Lord. I pray our love for You would be increased because we see just what You have saved us from and endured on our behalf. Lord, I pray that hard words would make soft hearts this morning. Deal with Your people. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know You, I pray, Lord, You would give them the grace to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.